All right, we're going to continue this morning with our study in the parables of Jesus. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 13, and we will be in verses 1 through 9. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and this is the parable of the barren fig tree. Um, this is an, a very simple parable. It would actually take us about 30 seconds to go through it. But the context is, is really what we're going to focus on today because, as we know in this class, context is, is everything. So we're in chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Now, as chapter 13 opens, Jesus is still in the midst of this great crowd that had gathered in chapter 12. You'll remember if you go back to the beginning of chapter 12, there was literally a, a crowd of thousands that they were actually trampling on one another. There were so many people and it's this same crowd where you remember last week in the, uh, the parable of the rich man's meditation, you remember the man hollers out from the crowd, Lord, uh, or teacher, will you tell my brother to share his inheritance with me? You remember that? We studied that last week. This is a, still the same crowd. It's still the same day, the same situation. Now, anytime you got a big crowd of people, uh, whether it's in a church here like River of Life or you got thousands on a hillside talking to Jesus... People are going to be there for different reasons. You're going to have some people there that are true disciples, that are, that are truly uh, looking for salvation. Others are going to be curiosity seekers, right? They, just, they hear this man's out there that can feed people, right? Let's go out and see what he's doing. Others are, are there for political reasons, right? They, they think Jesus has got this authority and maybe he's going to lead this uh, this rebellion or this overthrow or whatever. So they go out for that reason. Others are uh, out there to be fed or to be healed. And, and there's probably some there that are what I would call spiritual people. You ever met somebody that's spiritual but they don't go to church? You know, <laughs> they're spiritual but they don't believe in Jesus, right? And these are people, they don't, they don't see themselves as materialist. Uh, they don't see them, they're not a Christian, but yet they're somewhere in the middle. Right? They, 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 they want to they wanna know about the great questions of, of life. And, and maybe it was some in this last group who call out to Jesus beginning in verse 1. So again, Luke chapter 13, 1 through 9. Let's read verse 1. It says, There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Let's read that again. There was some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, then as now, whenever there is a tragedy in the news, right? Whenever you, you pick up the news and you read something, there's a tragedy, this weird accident or some kind of natural disaster or, or something like that, or maybe some crime, some shooting where people, a lot of people has been killed... Um, people begin to search for an explanation, don't we? Uh, it it's almost seems like it's almost inherent in our nature that we want to know why. We, we just want to know why did this thing happen. In fact, could you imagine if this text were placing today, I think we could imagine this, if Jesus were here today, I could almost imagine somebody coming up to him and saying, hey, did you hear about that bombing over in Manchester where that terrorist killed all them people? Or did you hear about the school shooting in, in Newton, Connecticut? Or did you hear about the planes that flew into the Twin Towers? Or did you hear about the earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people? This is the same kind of question. We're looking, we, we want to know why. Why are these things happening? Why do these great tragedies befall 
these people. Why? 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 So th these are the exact same thing here, what's going on back then. There was a tragedy, and these people wanted to know why. We want to know why did this thing happen. Again, it's not just in our nature to attribute things to chance or coincidence. We, we're not like that. We understand cause and effect. So we, we want to find out why, and we want to blame somebody, right? I mean, we're real good at blaming, right? Let's blame somebody. And there's usually three ways that we blame. If it's a crime, of course, we blame the perpetrator. It, it, sometimes we blame the victim. Sometimes we say, well, you know, they must have done something for something like that to happen to them. And then other times we turn around and there's nobody to blame, so we blame who? We blame God, right? Because somebody's got to be uh, at fault for some of this stuff that's, that's happening. So those tend to be the three standard reactions when we encounter tragedy or we counter something like that. Now, as we'll see in this morning's passage, this is nothing new. I say this over and over and over again. Culture changes, society changes, technology changes. People do not change. The, the same things that we worry about and fret about, Moses worried and fretted about. The same things that we worry and fret about, Pontius Pilate worried and fretted about. People don't change. We're no different. Human nature is human nature. In the same way that we want to know why, people back then wondered about those exact same things. Now, in today's passage, someone is asking Jesus about a particular tragedy that had more than likely just recently occurred in Jerusalem. Okay, And to the Jews, this would have been a particularly... Uh, bad thing for them. It would have had political overtones. It would have had religious overtones as well. Now, unfortunately, we don't have any other historical documentation other than that verse that we just read. But apparently, this is what had happened. There were some Galilean Jews. Now, you remember Jerusalem is in the province of Judea, and north of Judea is a province called Galilee, up on the Sea of Galilee. So some Galilean Jews from north of Jerusalem had come down probably to the city to celebrate one of the religious holidays. Now, the Jewish nation at that time, as we all know, is, is, is occupied by the Romans. And the Romans had put one of their own in place as governor of Judea. And again, its capital was Jerusalem. And this governor, of course we all know his name, his name was Pontius Pilate. Now, during the religious holy days in that day, all these pilgrims would come in, not only from other cities and other provinces, but even from other countries. And literally, the population of Jerusalem would swell like tenfold because all these Jews are coming in from all over these places to celebrate these religious holy days. And of course, you can imagine all these Jews are coming to Jerusalem. Feelings of religious fervor are, are very high. Uh, feelings of national patriotism are very high. Everybody's all hopped up, you know, they're all in Jerusalem celebrating this. Now, during these times, the Romans would be keeping a very close eye on things. In fact, what they would do is they would put soldiers undercover. They would have them dress up as just regular people and they would put them out in the crowd so they could hear what was going on and know what was going on. They're looking for, uh, you know, they don't want a riot to start. You know, they don't want this. They're looking for signs of sedition or, or rebellion. And, for, and apparently, for some reason, there was a group of Galilean Jews that were uh, under suspicion. 
for some reason there was a group of these Galilean Jews that Pilate thought for some reason something was, was going on. And these Jews were worshiping at the temple. So what he does, he sends in some of his troops right into the temple courtyard. <coughs> Excuse me. And these Galilean Jews are offering up their sacrifices. They're killing their lambs or killing their birds or whatever it was that they're sacrificing. And somehow or another, there's a struggle. The Roman soldiers are, are struggling with these Galilean Jews, and they kill them. They, they actually slay them right there where they're, where they're sacrificing. And so their blood is mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. That's, that's what this verse 1 is, is all about. Now, this would have been an extremely horrific crime in the eyes of the Jews. The, the Romans, the Gentiles, had gone into the temple... They've desecrated the temple. They've desecrated the sacrifices. They've, they've, I mean, they've killed Jews. I mean, this would have been absolutely an outrageous crime. Everybody would have known about it. Everybody would have been talking about it. So here we are on this day in this crowd, and somebody says, Hey, Jesus, did you hear about that? What, what, why did that happen? What's going on here? Give us some, some explanation. So the why questions begin to start. And of course, the blame game starts to play out, right? Now, I'm sure that they blame the Romans. That, that would be obvious. You know, they were the ones. But what we also find out is the people talking to Jesus seem to have thought that the Galileans had it coming to them. Okay? Now, you may say, they don't come right out and say it. They don't come right out and say, what did those people do? But Jesus knows what they're thinking. It's in their voice for whatever reason. They're thinking, these guys that got killed, these slain Galileans, man, they must have done something really bad for something like that to happen to them. In other words, extraordinary tragedy must signify extraordinary guilt. You see, they thought that their brutal death must have been some kind of karma, must have been some kind of divine karma. You know, if they got killed like that, Man, what did they do back up in Galilee? They must have some secret sins that only God knew about. Therefore, God brought this retribution on it. Now, how do we know all of this? How do we know that's what they're thinking? Because it's implied in the way that Jesus answers them. Look at verse 2. Now, remember, they, they come to him and they say, Hey, Jesus, what about those Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with the sacrifices? Jesus answers them in, the, in verse 2. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. Jesus says, is that what you think? You think they died because they did something worse than you or they did something worse than, than other people. Is that why you think this happened to them? See, it's very common in that day for people to believe that every time a, a, a person experienced some calamity, it was regarded as a punishment for their sins. In other words, it was karma. You had done something, and now it's come back on you. Now listen, let me just tell you right off the bat, this is bad theology, okay? This is bad theology, and this bad theology is found all throughout the Bible. Let me give you an example. Job's friends are famous for this type of bad theology, okay? Uh, in Job chapter 4, verse 7 through 8, it's one of Job's friends, I, bring, I believe it was Eliphaz, if I remember correctly, He's talking to Job, and he says this, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Y'all see what he's saying? He's telling Job, Job, all this bad stuff's happened to you, dude, you did something. Just tell us what you did. 
And Job keeps saying, man, I didn't do nothing. I'm not, I didn't do anything to warrant this. And they're like, come on, Job. Look, look man, we, don't we know? In fact, look what, he, look what he says. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now, by the way, is that true? It is true. That is a, that is a, a, a maxim that's been true. You reap what you sow. And they said it right there at the second part of that verse. They says, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. That is a truth. If you sow trouble, if you sow iniquity, you will reap trouble. But notice they made a leap there to something else. They said, by other words, if you're reaping trouble, therefore you must have sowed it. But see, that's not... That's, Job's saying, no, I didn't do that. But see, that's their same bad theology. If something's happened to you, therefore you must have done something to deserve that. This belief was very prevalent in pagan cultures. You remember in Acts chapter 28, Paul is is shipwrecked, right? And the, the, the ship crashes and falls apart and they all float up onto this island and it's raining and it's cold and they decide to build a fire. And so they got this fire going, and, and Paul goes out and gathers up some sticks, and he leans over to the fire to put the sticks on the fire, and a poisonous snake comes out and latches onto his hand. Y'all remember that story? Look at Acts 28.4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, look at that, no doubt this man's a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea, justice or karma or fate has not allowed him to live. Y'all see that? Oh, there you go. <laughs> That happened to him, must be a murderer. See? If you see and, and by the way, what anybody know what happened to Paul? Nothing. Nothing. He wasn't a murderer. He hadn't done anything wrong. That snake just fell off and nothing happened to him. But that kind of bad theology was prevalent in Job's friends. It's prevalent in pagan cultures. By the way, it was prevalent amongst Jesus' disciples. One day Jesus and the disciples are walking out of the temple and they pass a blind man and he's begging on the side of the road. And the disciples said to him, Teacher, who sinned, that man or his parents, that he was born blind? Everybody see the bad theology? Oh, somebody, what what did he do? Or what did his parents do that he was born blind? For something like that to happen to you, karma's, you know, you must have done something wrong. I mean, this is prevalent throughout Jewish society. By the way, this type of theology is still held today. And I mentioned earlier the, the Haiti earthquake back in 2010. It killed over 200,000 people. The next day, Pat Robertson gets up on TV and says that happened to them because their, their parents and their grandparents made a pact with the devil. It's the same theology. It's the same bad theology. We look at people, something bad happens, and we think in the back of our mind, I wonder what they did. I wonder what they did. So they're asking these people... Jesus, by the way, has a perfect example. He's got a perfect opportunity here to say, is this good theology or is it bad theology? And by the way, we need to ask ourselves, what is our theology of suffering and sin? How do we connect the two? Don't get caught in bad theology. Look at verses 2 through 3. We'll let Jesus answer this. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? What's the next word? No. 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 That is not why it happened. He goes on to say, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, Jesus says. That's, that's bad theology. That's not why the tragedy happened. And in fact, in order to make his point, 
he goes on to reference another tragedy, one that they didn't even ask him about. He says this in verses 4 through 5, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. So evidently that somebody was building a tower or, or some kind of pedestal or something uh, in Jerusalem out by the pool of Siloam, and there was a bunch of construction workers, and this tower fell, and it killed 18 men. And in that day, I mean, that's a lot of people to die at one time. It kills 18 people. Jesus said to them, and, and evidently they all knew about it, he says, of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than everybody else who lived in Jerusalem? What's his answer? No. No, that's not why it happened. But he says, I tell you this, unless you repent, you will all die the same way. See, there's his answer to this bad theology. No, those tragedies did not happen to those people because they somehow were worse sinners. It didn't happen to them because they had some kind of secret sin that they got hidden away. No, it, wasn't, it didn't happen to them because they were worse sinner than that person or that person. No, no, no. Now, he doesn't tell us why. And by the way, let me tell you, if you're wanting to know why, you're going to ask that question for a long time. Because God, you can search that Bible and search that Bible and search that Bible, and it'll give you hints, but it'll never come out and tell you why. Job got to ask that question, and what did God tell him? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are asking me that question? And Job said, oh, sorry, I, I repent. I, I didn't mean to ask that. Sorry, I, I, I spoke like an idiot. That's what Job said, basically. So what we do know, we don't know why those things happen, but we know why they didn't happen. They did not happen because those people were worse sinners than anybody else. Now, I want to take a few minutes here this morning to look at those verses because those verses have some awesome implications in them, implications about the way the world really is, not the way people see it. See, as human beings, we see the world and we think, well, it must work this way, that if something bad happens to you, it's because you did something bad. See, that's the way the world sees but, but Jesus is saying, no, that's, that's, that's not it at all. Let me tell you how it really is. I want to look at a few words. Twice Jesus repeats this verse, or repeats this statement. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then in verse 5, he says the exact same, first, uh, same statement again. Now, I want to look at a few words that's got some implications for us. The first word I want to look at is all. What Jesus said was this, no, their sin was not extraordinarily horrible. It was ordinarily horrible, just like yours and just like mine. And if you don't repent, you too will experience a horrible end just like they did. In other words, those people who experience tragic death or tragic accidents or, or whatever else, they're no more sinful than anybody else. In fact, we are all just as sinful as they are. Everybody with me? That's what Jesus is saying. You're all like that. All of your sin is bad. So instead of being amazed at their death, Jesus said, you need to get ready to die because if you don't repent, you're going to die just like they did. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. The truth Jesus is teaching here is that all of us are extremely sinful. He doesn't look at people and say he's worse than him or she's worse than her. We're all sinful, right? In fact, we are so sinful that calamities and disasters should not shock us 
as though something unwarranted is coming upon innocent human beings. Because listen, there are no innocent human beings. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. We are all sinners. We don't, God doesn't look at our sin as his is really, really bad and yours is not so bad. He looks at it as all horribly bad. We are all in rebellion against our Maker. What should amaze us, listen to me, is not that some are tragically taken. What should amaze us is that any of us are spared. That's what should amaze us. The amazing thing is not that guilty sinners die. The amazing thing is that God is so slow to bring justice, that God is so slow to anger that He actually gives people another day and another day and another day. There was an atheist by the name of Russell Bertrand. Anybody ever heard of him? His whole life he taught atheism. There is no God. Taught it, taught it, taught it. You know how old he was when he died? He was 99. 99. And I look at that and I say, God, why did you let that guy live for 99 years? Well, I see other Christians die in their 20s and 30s. Why did you let that? Because he is so slow to anger. He's so merciful. He's so loving. I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to give you one. That's what should amaze us. Not that people die, but that they're given one more day to repent before they go into eternity without him. Look at uh, verses 3 through 5 again. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, what does he mean by likewise? Basically, he's saying you're going to die or perish the same way that they did. Now, does he mean that all unrepentant sinners are going to be murdered in, in, in a house of worship? No. Does he mean that all unrepentant sinners are going to have a tower fall on them and squish them? No. That, that's, of course, not what he means. It, it, and in fact, it doesn't even mean die a physical death because we're all going to die. Those that repent and those that don't repent, we all, we're all going to die a physical death. So what does he mean when he says that all unrepentant sinners will likewise perish the same way that those people did? What he means, I think, is something like this. He says, you see what a horrible end those people came to? They didn't think it was going to happen to them. They were, in the, they were in the service that day. They were sacrificing, you know, sacrificing the animals for their sins. Or they were out on the construction job that day, building that tower, making a day's wage, looking forward to going home that night, eating dinner with their family, spending time with their family. And their end came just like that. They didn't expect it. They didn't know it was coming. And the shock of it, I mean, when they saw that tower coming down, they, the, the horror and the shock hit them just like that. It's over. He says, you're going to perish just like that. Unless you repent, that's the way it's going to be for you. Your end will be far more horrible than you think it's going to be. You, you're not going to be ready for it. It's going to surprise you terribly. In that sense, you will perish the same way if you don't repent. Look at Luke 7. Don't, you don't need to turn there, but I want to show you Luke 17. These are the words of Jesus. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah went in the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, there's that same word again. Jesus uses it again. Likewise, in the same way, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, just going about their life. 
But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. See, that's what Jesus said. People are just going about their life. They're going to Sunday worship. They're going to their job at the construction. They're eating, drinking, planning their wedding, doing all these things, and the end comes just like that. It's over. You're done. See, the parallel between you and them, between us and them, is there was something dreadful about the way their life ended. And there will be something dreadful about the way your life ends unless you repent. Only repentance can make you ready for that day. The next word I want to look at very quickly, and this will be the last one. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, as we said earlier, perish has to mean more than just dying because Jesus said if you repent, you won't perish. So he's not talking about a physical death here. In fact, the way he relates it to sin and judgment and repentance, it means one thing and one thing only. It has to refer to final judgment. Now, this is validated in multiple scriptures. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. There's the opposite. You either perish or you have everlasting life. Everlasting life or perish. Everlasting life, so, so perishing is the very opposite of having everlasting life. It is everlasting death. It is e- eternal separation from God. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Again, it's the difference, eternal life, eternal death. Eternal life, eternal death. Eternal life with God, eternal separation from God. That's what he's talking about when he says perish. You see, these Galileans that day, they're in the church service. They're worshiping. They're, they're probably thinking, man, we're going to go to uh, El Jalisco's after we finish these sacrifices, right? They're just planning their day, right? And all of a sudden, the door, the axe drops. The door closes. It's over. It's done with. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you too will be taken unawares and you will experience a horrible end. And that is the judgment of God beyond the grave. And of course, the last word, how do we get out of all this? Unless you repent. Unless you repent. You know, we talk about the term, we use the term repent a lot in church. And a lot of people talk about it means to turn, right? It means to turn away from sin. But in the biblical definition in the Greek, it literally means to change your mind. It's a turning from the way you did believe to a new way of believing. It literally means to change your mind. It means we change our mind about what we used to believe that that Satan's ways would lead us to joy. And now we change our mind and understand it's God's ways that leads us to true joy. It's turning from trusting uh, in other things to trusting in, in God. This is what we have to do if we don't want to suffer the same fate as the Galileans or the ones on whom the tower fell. Repent and enjoy eternal life. Don't repent and you will perish just like they did. Now, with all of that said, that sets the context for the parable. So Jesus wants to drive this home, right? Unless you repent, you're going to perish just like they do. He turns around and tells a parable. Verses 6 through 9. Very short, very simple. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. 
And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've been coming and looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I hadn't found anything. For three years, every year I come back at the time of harvest, I'm looking for fruit, and I don't find anything. I'm done with it. I'm, I'm done with it. Cut it down. Why should it even use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered him and said, Sir, give me one more year. Give me one more year. I'll, I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. I'll put on the manure. I'll do everything we need to do. I'll give it, give it one more year. And then if it, you come back next year and it doesn't have any fruit, then that's okay. Cut it down. But there won't be any more time. You, you can cut it down. Give me one more year. There's a phrase that we use in the English language when someone should be dead but they're still alive. We say, you know, like they get in an accident and it was a really bad accident and they walk away from it. We say they're living on what? Borrowed time. It's like that. You, you should have been dead, so you are living on borrowed time. Listen, as sinners, every one of us here should be dead, but we're not. Every one of us here should have been already been dead for our sin. If, if God would have done what he should have done, he would have just said, you're a sinner, that's it. But he doesn't. He gives us one more day, one more month, one more year. He's constantly giving us, giving us time. We, every, if you're here and you have not repented, you are living on borrowed time. You should have been dead, and you're not. He's giving you one more day. You see, death, folks, can take us in the womb. It can take us in the crib. It can take us in the work. It can take us in the car. It can take us at home. We're all living on borrowed time. We never know when the tower's going to fall. We never know when some act of violence will overtake us. We live under this illusion, don't we? Don't we all get in our car today? There's not, probably not a single one of us. We're all going to go get in the car and we're going to drive to our homes and not a one of us that even enters our mind that something's going to happen. We just set that aside. We know it's a possibility, but we don't even think about it. Because, by the way, if you did think about it, you'd never get in your car. You just quit living. You just sit in your, you sit in your house, you know, and, and, or you go out in the middle of a field. I don't know what you do because you start thinking about all the things that happen to you that drive you insane. But we set that aside. We live, we live under this illusion that that can't happen to me. That won't happen to me. But you see, the question this morning is not what kind of God lets that happen. As I said, we're all sinners. We all deserve to die. Death is a just penalty for sin according to Scripture. The real question is this morning, what kind of God lets us live? That's the question. It's not kind of what kind of... See, the world always says, what kind of God would let that happen? That's what those men want to know. What about those people? The question is not what kind of God would let that happen to those 18. The question is, what about the other 10,000 in the city that it didn't happen to? What kind of God is so merciful and loving that he, that he lets you live? Exodus 34, 6 through 7, this is a description of God. This is found all throughout the Bible. I just picked one. The, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty. There's the description of God. There's a balance that He strikes every day. He is so slow to anger. He is so loving, so merciful, so gracious. 
He gives people one more day, one more day, one more day. But in the end, he will by no means clear the guilty. People can write books and say love wins, and in the end, everybody's going to go to heaven and everybody's going to be happy, and the Bible says no. God will not clear the guilty. He will give you time, give you opportunities again and again and again and again, and you go on for so long living in sin, after a while you start thinking, man, I'm okay, right? Nobody knows. I'm all right. This God, he, he must, not, must not, maybe there ain't a God. Because if he saw what I was doing, he'd have struck me down a long time ago. But he doesn't because he's loving and merciful and slow to anger. But in the end, the axe is going to fall against the tree. That, because that's, he will not let the guilty go free. Over and over we're told that in Scripture about God. But understand, his patience has a purpose. Romans 2.4, Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The reason he's slow to anger, the reason he's so gracious and merciful, the reason he gives you one more day is he wants you to repent. Repent, turn from your sin, change your mind, turn to me, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you won't have to worry about all of that stuff. You won't have to worry about perishing. You won't have to worry about spending eternity apart from me. He gives me one more day. One more day. One more day. Borrowed time is not permanent, and God's patience is not permanent. You see, those points are so easy to understand in today's parable, are they not? It's a really simple parable. In fact, they're virtually unmistakable. God's Spirit will not strive with you forever. He will not strive with you forever. There's going to come a time, if you don't have no fruit, the tree will be cut down. We don't know the time, right? We don't know. Maybe I got another 10 seconds. Maybe I got another 10 years. But everyone who has not repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ Jesus is living on borrowed time. They're in danger of the judgment. They're in danger of the axe falling against the tree at any moment. That's why Isaiah says this in 55, 6 through 7, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you're alive and breathing, you've got an opportunity today to call on the Lord. If you're alive and breathing, this is your opportunity. It, it never, I just think one day I, I can imagine standing before the judgment of God for someone that doesn't know Jesus and in their mind, they'll replay every time somebody's talked to them, every time they were in church, every time they saw a billboard, every time they picked up a track, every opportunity will just replay. And they rejected it and rejected it and rejected it and rejected it. Today, in this Bible study, today in this service, is one more opportunity. If you don't know Jesus, you can call on Him while He's near. Now, finally, i got a few minutes. What is the application for us? Well, it's twofold this morning, depending on who you are. If you have not repented of your sins, if you have not put your trust in Christ Jesus as your Savior, the fact is you're living on borrowed time. I don't know where the axe is. You know, we've all probably used an axe from time to time and and you know, sometimes you got to go get the axe and you got to walk to the tree, right? And then you pick up the axe. I don't know where it is. 
In your case, literally the axe could be lifted and starting to come down. This could be your last opportunity. I don't know. You know, I heard people say one time, you shouldn't try to scare people. Folks, that should terrify us. Should it not? It should terrify us. This, this is, I mean, this should scare us to death if you don't know Him. If you're not sure that you're sure that you're sure, then you don't let this day go by because the axe could be raised and ready to fall. The message of the parable for you, if you don't know Him, is simple. You need to come while you have time. You need to come while there's breath in your mouth to call on Jesus Christ. You need to do it now. You do not need, you don't need to wait. And for those of us that are in the other group that have repented and put our faith in Christ, this parable has a different message for us. And I'm going to assume that's most of us here. And I want you to listen very closely. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, we can't just treat this as just another Bible study. You can't just treat this as just another Bible lesson. This is as important as anything we have ever studied. We should write this parable on a card and put it on our refrigerator. We should write it on a little card and put it in our wallet so that every time you buy something, you look across that clerk and you look at her and say, the axe could be ready to fall on her right now. Are you with me? See, the fact is, your children are going to perish. Your neighbors are going to perish. Your relatives, your co-workers are going to die and spend an eternity in hell apart from God unless somebody tells them the good news. You see, they're depending on Christians to pull them back. They're depending on Christians to tell them the good news. What are we going to do about it? If you're here and you've already repented, you've already heard the good news, you're not going to perish. You're going to spend an eternal life with God. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about all these people? God's given them one more day, one more year. How do you know when you go to Winn-Dixie and you're checking out, and that young girl sitting there, how do you know she'll be there tomorrow? You don't. We don't. We have got to wake up, and we've got to do something. I was, um, I was reading some quotes. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. And um, he died in 1963, same day that uh, John F. The only way I know he died on November 22nd, the same day John F. Kennedy was assassinated, he died. So he's been dead a long time, but he wrote some amazing books, and he makes you think in ways that you just... I just, you know, normally don't think. And so that's why I like to read his books. He's got a book called The Weight of Glory. And he wrote this. It is hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about the glory of our neighbor. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in your nightmare. Let me tell you what he's saying. Every human being is on one of two paths. They are either on a path to become like Jesus, have a body like Jesus, to be living in heaven like Jesus. One day he's saying, if you saw a glorified Christian, the same way that men are tempted to worship angels, if you saw a glorified Christian, you'd almost be tempted to worship them. That's how awesome it's going to be. But there's also a group of people that are on another path to spending an eternity in hell. 
and there'll be such a horror and a corruption of what they... Everybody with me? If you saw them, it would be like something out of a nightmare. And he's saying every person you meet, the clerk at the store, your coworker that sits in the cubicle next to you, every one of us are on a path to one of those two things. We're not just people. We're not just humans. We're not just mortals. We're going to become something else. He goes on to say, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of those destinations. Let me say that again. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or another of those destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendships, all our loves, all our play, all our politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to just a mere mortal. Everybody's on a path to one of those places. Which one are we helping them to get to? Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, those are just temporary things. Those are mortal things. The the importance of that is like a gnat. It's nothing. But it, it is immortals who we work with and joke with and marry and snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Which one we have a part to play as to which way they go. Are we trying to get them on the right path? Are we saying, now somebody else will will handle that? All the people that we run into and interact with on a daily basis are in danger of spending an eternity in hell unless they repent. The axe could fall on them any day. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? I want to, next week, we're going to talk about the sower. Everybody wants to know what we're going to do next week. Next week, we're going to talk about the sower. Before we close out on this today, I want everybody, if you will, to close your eyes and bow your heads for me. I, I would feel remiss if I did not give someone here an opportunity to be saved.